Thank you for that reading. Well, if there's any biblical theme that's been debated, misunderstood, abused by opportunists, it's material that's covered here in these uh, two chapters of Matthew 24 and 25, which we'll look at next week. Just do a Google search of end times and you'll find countless websites claiming to interpret current world events, uh, claiming to know something of God's timetable for the end of the world. There's some dangers that we face if we uh, start reading too many of these uh, end time ministry websites or books. One is that we become so preoccupied with trying to uh, understand the intricacies of the prophecies and the Bible verses that we're, we're distracted from the main work that Jesus calls us to, the proclamation of the Gospel. The other risk is that we become fearful as we read of tribulations and disasters, disasters and evil conspiracies. And there's a third danger that we just hear snippets of what people are saying without actually looking at the Bible itself for ourselves and so we just end up believing the the popular ideas that we hear and we end up believing things that Jesus himself never actually taught and we go along with kind of the, the, the tabloid style interpretations that depend more on speculation than on Jesus' words seen in its proper context. Now it's important for us to acknowledge and know that serious Bible scholars across the centuries uh, have differing views on how to interpret Matthew 24. So uh, we need to look at this passage uh, with open minds and hearts, willing to be flexible uh, and not too rigidly dogmatic. But at the same time it's important for us to understand what Jesus is teaching because he said it for a reason. And Matthew, led by the Holy Spirit, along with Mark and Luke who have this passage in their Gospels too, uh, recorded it and it's preserved here for a reason. So we, we need to learn from it. We shouldn't just kind of brush over it and say it's, it just sounds all too hard and too complicated. So if we look at the, the historical context of this chapter, both its historical setting and, and its place in the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly chapter 23 just before it, which we uh, haven't read, but you can, if you've got Bible there you can glance your eyes over it we'll find that it's, it's actually saying something different to what's in the popular imagination. Matthew 24 speaks largely of events that are in the past for us. Now for Jesus and his disciples and for the original readers of Matthew's Gospel when it was written in the, the 50s or 60s, Uh, They were future events because Jesus here is talking about the destruction of the temple that took place in 70 AD. 
That's the, the critical event that he speaks of in verses 1 to 35. And the main lesson that he wants his disciples to learn from that is in verse 6. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. See, he's answering the first part of their question. Uh, When he said to them, see this great temple, every stone is going to be thrown down, their response was, when will these things be? The, The first part of their question. And it's only from verse 36 then that he begins speaking of the end of the age and deals with the second part of their question, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See, in the disciples' mind, uh, there it is, in the disciples' mind, these two events were the one event. They couldn't conceive of a world without the temple. Uh, Up to this point it has taken 40 years to build. It was such a magnificent structure and sadly, in a sense, uh, when it was destroyed it had only been completed for a few years. Magnificent building and so for them this was the the centre of their faith was the temple. They couldn't imagine that this age could continue without the temple in it. So they thought if there's a destruction of the temple, that must be the end of the age. It must be the final judgment. So they were looking for this single event in which God would restore the kingdom to Israel and then usher in the final uh, new eternal age. But Jesus hadn't actually promised to restore the kingdom to Israel. See what he says just back in chapter 21. Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And just in chapter 3, chapter 23, just before this chapter, uh, the whole chapter is Jesus pronouncing woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees and it culminates then with this uh, pronouncement of judgement upon Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount began right at the start of Matthew's Gospel? A series of Beatitudes, covenant blessings. As as the people entered the Promised Land, the Israelites... God pronounced blessing on them as they uh, were called to obey his law and to worship him alone in spirit and in truth. And he said, you will be blessed if you obey my words. 
But he also warned them of the curses that would come if they disobeyed, as, as they worshipped other gods. And so God's judgement of Israel throughout their history is him simply being true to the terms of the covenant. Obey me, you will know blessing and prosperity. Disobey me, you will know curse and judgement. It wasn't that God was giving up on them. It was, he was remaining true to his covenant with them. This paragraph that Jesus speaks here is it's like a summary of all of the Old Testament prophets. They spoke of the Lord's covenant love for his people. How long I would have gathered your children like a, a hen gathers her brood under her wings. That's the, the desire of God for his people in the covenant. It also, the prophets also though, spoke of the departure of his presence from the temple when they went into exile and when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And they also spoke of the promise of future return and the time that the Messiah would come. But now Jesus is speaking these words when their Messiah has come. But they've rejected him. They have rejected the main thing that all of their history was pointing to. So the Lord is leaving the temple for good. See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house, the temple here in Jerusalem, is going to be abandoned. Why? Because God's presence is now in the new temple, in Jesus, as he walks among his people, the church. So Jesus is showing them that there's actually two separate events each at opposite ends of what we might call the church age or as it says there the the overlap of the ages that's the time in which we live today between that first cataclysmic judgement when the temple was destroyed and the coming cataclysmic judgement when Jesus returns to judge all people see how he sums that idea up in verses 4 to 14. See, he doesn't want them to be led astray by those claiming to be the Christ, claiming to be Jesus returned, coming to bring in the end. And he says that they shouldn't be alarmed at news of wars and famines and earthquakes because the end is not yet. Instead, These things should be seen as the beginning, like a pregnant woman who experiences her first birth pains, first contractions. And these birth pains will continue with tribulation, with falling away, with false prophets, with lawlessness and lovelessness. And the disciples are called to stand firm through all of this as they look for the coming salvation. However, the end of the age will not come until God has accomplished his plan. His plan for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth, to all nations. 
It's only when God has completed his agenda that he'll bring about the end of the age. So this first cataclysmic event that the disciples and their world faced begins with this abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Jesus is saying that this event will be the fulfilment of Daniel's prophecies. Speaking more than 500 years before Jesus, Daniel prophesied the coming of a great king who will attack Jerusalem. Here's what Daniel says in chapter 11. Forces from him, from this great king, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This uh, prophecy goes on to, to speak of the final judgment and of the resurrection after this time. One of the great promises of the resurrection that's there in the Old Testament. Then at the end of this prophecy, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. So all that he's just been told, he's, it's all mystery to him. He doesn't work out, doesn't know how it's going to work out. He doesn't, doesn't seem to be able to fit it into his world, his time. So then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise will understand. Remember, Jesus used that phrase, let the reader understand. Jesus is saying here, what you've read in Daniel the things that Daniel himself couldn't understand because they were sealed until the time of the end, these are the things that I'm speaking of now. This prophecy will be fulfilled before your very eyes. When the Romans marched into Jerusalem in 70 AD, the Jewish zealot rebels They'd already taken over the temple a couple of years before that as the Roman armies were surrounding Jerusalem. These zealots killed the priests and they set up their own priesthood. The Romans came in and they brutally slaughtered all who were in the city. The floor of the temple ran with blood. Then the Romans set up altars and made sacrifices to their Roman gods in the temple, claiming it for Rome 
and for Caesar. The temple had been desolated by an abomination. However, the Christians had already left Jerusalem and Judea. They had fled to the mountains as Jesus had told them because they saw the signs. An early church father called Eusebius uh, who wrote a history of the church up to his time in the early 300s Uh, He said this, The people of the church in Jerusalem were commanded by an oracle given by revelation before the war to those in the city who were worthy of it to depart and dwell in one of the cities of Pella. To those who believed on, to it, those who believed on Christ travelled from Jerusalem so that when the holy men had altogether departed the royal capital of the Jews, and the whole land of Judea, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. Eusebius says that they received an oracle. What is the oracle? Matthew 24. When you see these things happen, flee Judea to the mountains. The reason I believe that Jesus here is speaking of the temple's destruction uh, rather than his return and the final judgment is this very specific command that he gives. And also in verse 34 where he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now this is a statement of more than just time frame. It does mean that it will happen within the lifetime of those who are there at the time of Jesus, but it's also a statement of God's patience. Patience towards this generation who had the privilege of living in the time of the Messiah. Those who saw the Old Testament promises of God being fulfilled before their eyes. This is the first generation who are given the opportunity to embrace Jesus as their Messiah. This generation were longing for the Messiah but they were also hard-hearted and that was evidenced by the fact that most of them, led by the scribes and the Pharisees, didn't receive him or embrace him but opposed him and soon they'll have him put to death. This is the generation that Jesus pronounced judgment on in chapter 23. But he is patient with them. He's going to endure with them for another 40 years, giving them every opportunity to hear the gospel and to repent and to believe. Now, you may look at these verses, uh, some of these verses, and say, well, But Jesus' words here sound very much like end-of-the-world ideas. The sun being darkened, the stars falling from heaven. And he even speaks of, in verse 30, the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It sounds like end-of-the-world stuff, doesn't it? But remember, Jesus has told us that 
Uh, he's referring here to the prophecy of Daniel. So again, let's go to the book of Daniel and see what Daniel says about this. Um, Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So see here how the Son of Man and this is where Jesus draws this title that he uses of himself more than any other title. The Son of Man is coming not from heaven to earth but he is coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days, of the Father. And there the Father gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Remember when the disciples were with the risen Jesus on the mountain and Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him from their sight. This was meant to communicate to the disciples that Jesus, the Son of Man, on the clouds was ascending to this place of glory at the right hand of the Father. So what Jesus is saying here, I believe, by referring to this prophecy is that when, after 40 years of patience, God's judgment comes to Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed in a final way, it will be a sign to the Jews that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has all authority in heaven and earth. He has been given the kingdom of God and by his authority now he's bringing to an end the old system because it's been fulfilled in his death and resurrection. So from this time onwards... The kingdom will no longer be expressed through national Israel but through the church. As the church goes out and proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, as we declare the kingdom of God is at hand, it's come in Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is preparing his disciples and his people there in the first century for these events. He's giving them very precise signs to look for so that they won't be caught by surprise when it happens. They'll be prepared in advance so they can flee and keep safe from the, the terrible things that take place. But also so they would be happy for, uh, ready, they'll be happy but also ready for what would happen next the explosive growth of the gospel. From this point on, from the destruction of the temple, there was just this explosive spread of the gospel right across the Roman Empire to Jews, to Gentiles, to Greeks, to barbarians, to to everyone and from the Roman Empire then to the ends of the earth. But then we come to verse 36. 
And there's a shift. Jesus refers to that day and hour. There's a shift in his language. He's no longer talking about these things, the immediate, soon-to-come destruction of the temple, but he's talking about that day. He's talking about the conclusion, then, of the church age, the final judgment. And unlike the destruction of the temple, this will come without any preemptive signs. Remember, he said it will be like a flash of lightning. Life will be ticking over as normal, just like it was in the days of Noah. No one will be able to say, although many will try, because this event is happening in Israel or America or somewhere else in the world, uh, then Jesus' return must be just around the corner. Occasionally we may hear of someone who claims to know the date or maybe someone who says, yeah, I know we can't know the day or the hour but I can know the month or the year or the period of time. Jesus categorically says, if anyone claims to know, if anyone says, look, there's the Christ or there he is, he says we shouldn't believe it because when he comes... There will be no doubt, there will be no questioning. No one will need to tell us, see him, he's the Christ. It will be a flash of lightning and every eye will see him. What does that mean? It means we we don't need to get caught up in, or we don't need to be fearful about the speculation about end of world events. Probably every generation for the last 2,000 years has thought, Well, things can't get any worse than they seem today. So, therefore, Jesus must be coming back soon. That's what people were saying during the time of the plague in Europe. We live during a time of plague now, don't we? Not not like those days, but uh, some have said, is the coronavirus a sign of the soon return of Jesus? Well, no, it's not. The coronavirus pandemic is just a reminder to us that ever since Eden, the world has been under the curse of sin and death. Creation is groaning, it's still waiting in hope for its eventual liberation from decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The coronavirus is just another contraction, just another labour pain while we wait for the end. So how then should we be living in this time, this overlap of the ages? Well, two things. We are to watch, expecting him to come at any time. And we are to work as if he'll come when we don't expect. And he illustrates this with these two short parables about the the servants and the master of the house. Let's remind ourselves of what they say. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So if you know your house is going to be broken into at a certain time, you'll be watchful and alert at that time. How much more then, if all you know is a thief is going to come and break into my house, but it could be at any time, must you then be watchful all the time? If we're waiting for certain signs and those signs that we think we have to wait for haven't yet happened, what will we do? We'll become complacent. We'll become attached to this world. We'll put off serving God because we think we have plenty of time. But Jesus could come without warning. Even before I finish this sermon, some of you might say that's a good thing. But are we ready? Are we ready for him to come at any time? Are we watchful? Are we waiting eagerly for his appearing? Secondly, work as if he'll come when we don't expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. This faithful servant, because he doesn't know when his master will return, he actually just got on with the role that he'd been given to fulfil in his master's absence, providing the food at the proper time. For him, it was business as usual, as he sought to work in a way that pleased his master. But, verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This wicked servant, he thought he could work out the time of his master's return. And he used it as an excuse to live for himself, rather than be on about his master's business. Notice how Jesus uses that word hypocrites again. It's it's the word that he used repeatedly over and over to refer to the scribes and the Pharisees and in fact to anyone who doesn't hear his word and put it into action. This isn't a judgement where we'll be cast out if we haven't worked hard enough. No, this this is an exposing of those whose religion, whose profession of faith is false rather than based on Jesus Christ. So, we've heard, it'll be business as usual in the world, right up to the point of Jesus' return. And so, too, in the church, as God's people, it should be, too, business as usual as we wait for his return, giving ourselves to the work that he's entrusted us, of proclaiming the gospel, of being salt of the earth and light of the world. Taking the word of life and holding onto it firmly as the only message that gives us hope but also taking that word and holding it out so that it can give hope to others. 
So we shouldn't, we shouldn't either, neither, we should neither retreat to a bunker because we've worked out that the time is short and so it's not worth investing time and energy in doing anything, nor should we become complacent or distracted because we've worked out that we have plenty of time and so we'll make this world our home, our permanent home. Be watchful and be diligent. Faithfully serving God as his word has commanded us, yet always keeping our eyes on the horizon for the breaking of the dawn, knowing that this world is not our home. That's what makes us a people of hope. See what Paul says in Romans 8. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Brothers and sisters, let's hear Jesus' words here. Let's not be led astray by end time speculation. Let's not fear what may come to pass in this life because We have the promise from Jesus that he will come and it will be at the time appointed by his Father. No sooner, no later. And just as he was patient with that first generation who saw Jesus, so also he's displaying his great patience today, giving every opportunity for people to turn in repentance and faith A sign of that patience is that he's waited nearly 2,000 years so that you and I might be included in those who believe and are saved. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Why? Because the Father set his love on you. He chose you before the foundation of the world and he's patiently waited all this time to bring you in. So let the certainty of this fill you with hope. The certainty that it will come to pass because he who promised is faithful. And then let this hope spur you on to love and good deeds and to be bold in proclaiming the gospel, the word of life, the good news of Jesus to those around you. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful hope you have given us that your Son, the Son of Man, the Son of God is seated at your right hand, has all authority in heaven and on earth uh, and is with us as he sends us out to make disciples of all nations and to proclaim the excellencies of, of you. And what a wonderful hope we have that uh, in your perfect timing Uh, He will return and renew all things. For there will be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home and where we are at home. Father, we pray that you will continue to make us such a people of hope that we will cling firmly to the promises of Jesus, that we will faithfully seek to serve him with all of our lives, that we will faithfully and diligently and boldly hold out 
uh, the word of truth that gives this hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn. Uh, Now this is a hymn that I think we learnt during the coronavirus lockdown. So if you were watching the services, uh, hopefully you remember this hymn and we'll be able to sing it with with hope, uh, knowing that we are precious to him and because we're precious to him, he will come uh, to be with him. Let's stand and sing. Yeah.